Good morning. Um, today we continue in our series of the wonderful works of God, and we're leaving Genesis and Abraham behind, and we're going to look at this in the life of Moses and what God did um, in that generation. We'll be reading selected portions of the text, so please follow along on the screen or in your bulletin, starting in chapter 2, we read. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from, rest, from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Then in chapter 6, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. From chapter 7 to 11, we read of God's great acts of judgment in the form of nine terrible plagues upon the Egyptians. Despite this, Pharaoh continued refusing to let the Israelites go, and the tenth and final plague was imminent. So in chapter 12, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. 
it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, but there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is the word of God. Great, thank you, Margot and Celeste. Well, uh, great to be back with you, and if you are new, great to have you with us this morning. Let me pray for us briefly, and then we're going to dive in. Father God, we say this every week, but as we come to your word, we want to hear you speaking to us. We are not in the slight bit interested in the opinions of man. We're not here for a pep talk just to encourage us. We're not here just to um, hear some wisdom to help us in our lives. We want to encounter you, the living God, through your word. And so God, we pray by your spirit, may your spirit and your word work together, God. As we look at your word, may your spirit be writing it on our hearts. God, come and reveal yourself to us. Make us known, make yourself known to us this morning through your word, we pray. We want to love you and know you better. We want to trust you and follow you. And so come and help us to do that. God, build our faith, build our love for you, build our trust in you this morning. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Well, we are uh, continuing the series, as solicited, uh, the wonderful work of God. And what we're doing is we are zooming out and looking at the whole storyline of the Bible. We, we want to see the narrative arc of the Bible from beginning to end. And, and the reason we're doing this is we want to understand what the Bible is about. We don't just come to the Bible to learn a little bit of wisdom, There's some insights here and there, some bits of advice to help us get along with our lives. God is wanting to speak to us. But in order to understand it, we need to know what's going on. Uh, incidentally, one of the things you find when you read the whole Bible is you discover it's actually not about you. We tend to think the Bible is about us. God's giving us some wisdom, some advice. Actually, the Bible is about God and what he's doing. It's about the wonderful work of God. But the other thing is, many of us will know little sections of the Bible. We'll know some stories. We'll know some, some teaching, uh, maybe some of the words of Jesus. But it's really hard to make sense of those individual parts unless you know where into the big picture they fit in. It's easy to misinterpret them, to misunderstand them, to think they're saying one thing, but actually in light of the context, it's saying something else. And so we're doing this series. We want to see what is God saying in his Bible. And so two weeks ago, we started in Genesis 1 to, 2, uh, 1 to 3, and we saw that God has a plan for humanity. He has a design. And his design is that God's people 
live under his rule, uh, experiencing his blessing and his favor as they live in the place that he's assigned for them. Uh, But we also saw that unfortunately this plan has got messed up because of humanity's sin. Sin has ruined everything in our world. It's ruined our experience of the world. And so now God's plan is kind of out of kilter in a way. We are no longer God's people, no longer living under his rule, and therefore no longer experiencing his blessing. The world is nothing like what it's meant to be. But then last week we saw, but just because humanity messed things up doesn't mean that God's plan is off course or in trouble. God is still working all things according to the purpose of his will. God is sovereign and his plan will come to pass. And so we saw that God is still going to form a people, bring them under his rule, so that they can experience his blessing and his favor. And the way that God does this is he starts off, he chooses a man, a man by the name of Abram, and uh, God makes him a promise. And the promise is that through Abram and his descendants, his offspring, God is going to form a community of people, a new community of people. And these people will live under his rule and experience his blessing and his favor. But it won't end with them. Through this community, this tribe, this family, all the nations of the world will one day ultimately be blessed. From Hong Kong to South America, every nation will be blessed through what God is going to do through this family of Abram. And so God is starting to reverse the effects of the curse and the fall. Humanity lives kind of under sin's curse. God is going to bring a group of people out from under that, under his rule, to experience his blessing and his grace. And so the rest of, that's what we looked at last week. Niels looked at that. The rest of Genesis is the story of Abram's family. And uh, Abram has a son, Isaac, and they have a son, Jacob. And, and eventually the family starts to grow and grow and grow. And we see God's plan starting to bear fruit. Well, today we come to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And the beginning of Exodus, it starts off and it tells us that this family tree of Abraham is growing. And it's, it's, it's a sizable tribe. And so we start off in chapter 1, verse 7, says this. The people of Israel, that's the descendants of Abram, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was full of them. Shows that God's promise to Abraham is starting to take shape. This childless couple, Abram and Sarah, have become a sizable tribe. But the problem is the rest of the promise about coming under God's rule and experiencing his favor and his blessing, that still seems like a very far way off. It seems like a bit of a pipe dream that nobody really knows how it's going to happen. Because they are sizable, but they're not living in God's promised land. They're living in Egypt. And they're not under God's gracious rule. They're under the rule of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a bit of a tyrannical king. And, And they're not experiencing God's favor and his blessing. No, they're experiencing Pharaoh's hardship. And so God's people, the Israelites, are are in misery. They are suffering. They are in hardship. And so the question is this. What is God doing? How is God going to bring his promises to bear? Or maybe, has God forgotten his promises? Were his promises an exaggeration that are maybe just one step too far? What is God doing and how is he going to keep his promises? What we see today is God is 
slowly working all things according to the purpose of his will. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to form a people. He's going to form a people. He's going to take the descendants of Abraham, this rather sorry bunch of murderous, deceitful, backstabbing, broken family. And these people that are a bit of a mess, he's going to form them into his people, his chosen people. And so how's God going to do that? Well, he's going to do a couple of things. But maybe before we look at that youth, let me ask you if you're a high schooler. Maybe I can ask you, what does it mean to be part of God's people? How would you know whether you're part of God's people? Maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian this morning. How would you know what it would look like to be part of God's people? Well, I think this passage is going to tell us. And so God is going to form a people. He's going to do it in a bunch of stages. Look at the first thing he does. The first thing is revelation. God reveals himself. Before God does anything for them, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to reveal himself to them. So in chapter 3, we, we didn't read it, but the story picks up like this. Moses is out in the wilderness. He's, he's in the desert, and there's a story how he gets there. I'll tell you that in a few minutes' time. He's out in the wilderness looking after sheep. Not a very exciting job. And uh, one day, God chooses to reveal himself to Moses in the most unusual way. Moses is following a sheep, and there's a tree that's on fire, but it's not burning up. It's just, it's, the leaves are still green, but it's on fire. And Moses draws near, and as he does, God calls to him audibly, Moses, Moses. And then he says this, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now notice, Moses is not looking for God. He's just looking for his sheep. But God is looking for Moses. God takes the initiative when Moses is not interested in God, takes initiative and reaches out and calls him to himself. And what, what does he say? How does he reveal himself to Moses? He says, I am the God of your fathers. Uh, five or six times he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I'm the God of the promise. I'm the one who all those 400 years ago spoke to Abraham. I haven't forgotten. In fact, I think we, we read it in chapter six. It says, God remembered his covenant to Abraham. That doesn't mean that he had forgotten and suddenly he was like, oh yeah, actually I made a promise. No, it means God is about to fulfill it. God reveals himself as the God of the promise. It says that chapter two, God heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. That's what God does. He draws near and he says, Moses, I want you to know me. Now, incidentally, it's not only Moses that God wants to reveal himself to. He also is going to reveal himself to all the Egyptians. In, in the plagues that Margot told us about, we didn't read about all of them, but almost every time there's a plague, God says, this is being done, then all the world will know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. God wants Pharaoh to know who he is. He says, Moses says to Pharaoh, God is sending these plagues that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Why does God keep on bringing plague after plague after plague, even though he's the one who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Sometimes it feels a bit unfair, right? And God keeps on doing this. The reason is he wants to reveal himself to Israel and to Egypt, to all the watching world, that he is the one true God, above all the gods of Egypt. So Egypt have multiple gods. And each plague, God is picking them off, saying, no, no, I'm actually the God of that. No, I'm the God of the water. I'm the God of creation. I'm the God of the sun, the moon, and the stars. I am the one true God. But it's not only Moses and Pharaoh who need to know. 
so do God's people. And so Moses, God says to Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and you are going to deliver my people. And Moses says, okay, so I go back and who do I tell them is sending me? I mean, Egypt's got lots of gods. What is your name? And God gives himself the most unusual name. It's the name I am. Or I am what I am. Or I am who I am. It's a very unusual name. Who is sending you? I am is sending me. In, in Hebrew, I think we'd say Yahweh. Or in English, sometimes we say Jehovah. But it, it really, in English, it means I am. It's an unusual name, but what does it mean? Well, it means many things. On the one hand, it means I am the limitless God. I'm the God who has no restraints, no constraints. I'm not the God of this nation or this nation, of this culture or this people group. I simply am the one true God. I'm not the God of the sun or the moon or fertility or the crops or the water. I simply am. I am the one divine being over all existence. I am who I am. I'm simply the self-existing God. I am the one true God. I am. But in addition to that, scholar says there's something else going on here. In almost all ancient civilizations, the gods were defined by their characteristics about certain characteristics. So the God who does this, the, the God of, of, of this uh, aspect of life. When God says, I am, he seems to be saying, if you want to know who I am, you won't find out by any words or description or by going to the temple or through any priest. The way you find out who I really am is by watching my actions. God, who are you? I am the God who acts in history. God will be found out or reveals himself, not through any description or through any sacred text, but through his actions. I am who I am. And what they will come to know God through what he is about to do. And what is God about to do? Well, he's about to rescue them. Who is God? He is the rescuing God. So when Moses says, who are you? God, in a sense, answers by saying, this is who I am. Watch what I'm about to do. And what is he going to do? He's going to rescue his people. And that's the second thing we see. How is God going to form his people? What does it mean to be part of the people of God? Well, firstly, he reveals himself to them. He calls them and he makes himself known to them. But secondly, he rescues them. He is the rescuing God. Look at, uh, if you've got your bulletin, uh, chapter 6, verse 6 to 7. We're going to look at this scripture quite a lot. This kind of shapes much of the sermon. God says this in uh, verses 6 and 7. He says, Moses, so what's happened here, Moses has gone back. He's spoken to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has made things worse. And uh, now the Israelites are upset with Moses because Moses is making things worse. And uh, God says to him, Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, or Yahweh, or I am who I am. I will bring you out from under the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Then you will know 
that I am the Lord your God. So how are God's people going to know who God is? How are they going to figure out who is this God? Well, they're going to see what he's going to do. And what is he doing? Well, he says here three times, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. The way they're going to know who God is, is not through description, but through watching his actions. He's going to rescue them. And of course, that's the whole point of Exodus, isn't it? That God is going to rescue his people. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. We read it earlier. They weren't just living there as expats. They were under Pharaoh's slavery. And things are getting worse. The more Moses speaks to Pharaoh to say, let God's people go, the worse things get. Pharaoh cracks the whip even harder. Until at one point, even Moses has his doubts. And Moses cries out and says, God, what are you doing? Where are you? I thought you meant to save your people and things are just getting worse. But look at what God says. I will deliver my people. I will redeem them. I will bring them up. I will set them free. One of the reasons why it takes so long for God's people to get delivered and why the more they try, things get worse and why Pharaoh keeps on saying no, 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 you know, 10 times or nine times is because God wants his people to be under no illusions as to who rescued them. And Neil's pointed this out to me this week, but imagine if God had changed Pharaoh's heart so after the first instant, Pharaoh said, sure, okay, you can go, no problem. I mean, what would the Israelites have thought? Oh, Pharaoh's such a nice guy. I mean, he he was a little harsh in the beginning, but no, he's actually not such a bad guy after all. He let us go, right? Or maybe they would have thought Moses' great diplomacy. I mean, they go into the wilderness and they're going to build a statue, a golden statue of Moses, and they're going to bow down to Moses, right? This great leader that set them free. God wants them to be under no illusions who it is that sets them free. It wasn't Pharaoh, and it wasn't Moses. It was the one true God. God is the one who brought them back to life when they were dead. God is the one who brought them to promised land when they were lost. God is the one who rescued them. If you know the story of Exodus in in chapter 2, this is how Moses ends up in the wilderness. In chapter 2, Moses is a a prince in Egypt. He actually grew up in Pharaoh's household. And um, one day he sees an Egyptian attacking an Israelite. And he thinks, this is not right. His heart stirs up. And he runs to the defense of the Israelite. And he beats the Egyptian. He ends up killing the Egyptian. And he rescues the Israelite from this cruel hand of the Egyptian. And Moses thinks, my people are going to recognize me. I'm a deliverer. They're going to thank me. But what happens? The next day, the Israelites turn on him. Rather than thanking him, they turn on him. And things end disastrously because Pharaoh hears that Moses has killed an Egyptian. And Pharaoh puts a bounty on Moses' head and wants to get Moses killed. And so Moses runs for his life and flees from Egypt and ends up in the wilderness for 40 years, looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And so here's Moses thinking, I am going to be this great deliverer. I'm going to rescue God's people. No, no, if you try, you'll mess it up, God says. The point is God will use Moses, but Moses will not deliver God's people. God is the one who rescues And what does God rescue them from? Well, on the one hand, he rescues them from slavery, right? We read that earlier. I will deliver you from slavery. 
right in the beginning, God says, I have seen my people suffering. I've heard their groans. I know what's going on. I have come down. I will rescue them. But he also rescues them from judgment. And look at verse 6 again of chapter 6 with us. God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so let's read earlier in chapter 12. God says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgment. God is going to judge all the inhabitants of Israel, uh, sorry, of Egypt, and it's going to affect everyone. And how's this judgment going to come? Well, the firstborn of every living family is going to come under God's judgment and is going to die. The firstborn of Pharaoh on the throne, the prisoner in prison, the livestock out in the field, the firstborn of every living creature, of every family, is going to come under God's judgment and is going to die. Except God is going to make a distinction. And the distinction is not between the good and the bad, the sinless and the sinful, because actually everybody in Egypt is sinners. Even God's people are sinners. If you think about how they respond to Moses and God, their hearts get hard, they moan and grumble, they shake their fists at God. Even God's people are sinners. So God's gonna make a distinction, but it's not between the good and the bad, the sinful and the sinless. It's between those who trust him and believe in him and take his word and those who don't. See, God's people are those who trust him. And because they trust him, when judgment comes on Egypt, God is going to pass over them so that they won't experience his judgment. They will be saved. God's enemies will be judged, but those who trust him will be saved. And how does this salvation come about? How does this Passover come about? Well, it comes about through sacrifice and substitutes. You see, somebody else will shed their blood in their place. Some innocent life will die so that those who trust God don't need to. God says, go out to the fields and take one of your lambs, one per family, and slaughter that lamb. And that innocent lamb will shed his blood. He will die. And when you do that, you take the blood from the lamb, put it in a bowl on the floor, and you paint the door frames of your house. You paint blood on the door frames, on the tops and on the sides. Kind of like the shape of a cross, but not exactly. And when you do that, when judgment comes on Egypt, I will pass over your house and your family will be saved because a substitute will be sacrificed in your place. And so those who trust God and believe in him and put their faith in God's word and his provision are passed over and they are saved by the blood of the lamb. How are God's people formed? Through revelation and through rescue. But now notice, what's the relationship between revelation and rescue? The relationship is actually symbiotic. Symbiotic means they work together. In some ways, which one comes first? Does God reveal himself and then rescue, or does he rescue and by rescuing reveal himself? Well, actually, the answer is both. As God reveals himself to his people, how does he reveal himself? He says, I am the God that's going to rescue you. And as God rescues, what is he doing? He's revealing his nature and his character. He's showing them who he is. Friends, can you see what this means? Still today, to be the people of God, you need two things. 
You need God to reveal himself and you need to be rescued by God. Who are God's people? Who are those that are part of God's kingdom? Those who have come to know him, those that have been rescued. See, friends, God doesn't just invite us into his kingdom like you invite somebody to your wedding. You, know, you send out the invitation and say, please come. Oh, it'd be lovely if you could join us. God doesn't just invite people into his kingdom. He rescues people into his kingdom. He saves people into his kingdom. The good news of the Bible is that God can save, and God does save, and God loves to save. God delights in rescuing people. Friends, can you see how this all points to Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come down? Was it because he wanted to give us some good advice, some good teaching? To get us to see how the world has got a bit messed up and to put us back on the noble path towards enlightenment. No, friends, Jesus didn't come to give us good advice or to just simply tell us how to live our lives. Jesus came to reveal God to us, to show us what God is like. The Apostle John says, The Word became flesh, that's Jesus, and has dwelt amongst us. And by seeing Him, we have seen the glory of the Father the glory of the only son from the father who is full of grace and truth. So John's saying, because we've seen Jesus, we've seen what God the father is like. And what is God the father like? He is full of truth, righteousness, justice, holiness, but he's also full of grace. He's full of mercy. He's long suffering. He's full of patience. Jesus came to show us, reveal to us what God is like. But how did Jesus reveal who God is and how God is like? Where do we most clearly see the glory of God in the face of Christ? Is it through his teachings? Is it through his miracles? No, friends. Where is it? It's on the cross, right? It's on Mount Calvary. As Jesus hung there nailed to the cross and dies, friends, we see the fullness that God is full of truth and justice and righteousness, and God will, God will judge sin in the world. But we also see on the cross, God is full of grace and mercy and patience. Friends, we may be tempted to think, oh, you know, in the New Testament, God is so full of grace and mercy. He's not wrathful and judgmental like in the Old Testament. No, don't you see, on the cross, God was pouring out his wrath. He was pouring out his judgment on sin. It's just that Jesus took our judgment and our wrath in our place so that those who trust in him, it doesn't need to fall on us. God will still save through judgment, but he saves by pouring his judgment on Jesus, our substitute in our place. We sang earlier, uh, Julian led us in that song. The one line says, great and awesome is your name. You know what the name Jesus means? The name Jesus means God saves. Jesus is the innocent life whose blood was shed in our place so that we can be saved. How does God form his people? He does it through revealing himself, making himself known, calling us out of darkness into light. He, he forms the people through rescuing us and saving us. There's one last thing. He forms a people through relationship. Relationship. Once again, we see God's people are rescued and saved, but now what? 
Once they are out of Egypt, what, should they simply thank God and go on their way? Well, look at what Exodus 6, verse 6 to 8 says. Let's read it again. We've read it a couple of times. Uh, God says this, I am the Lord your God. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. What is the point of God rescuing his people? The point is relationship. Uh, Many, many years ago, when I was about eight or nine years old, um, I grew up in South Africa and I grew up inland in a place called Johannesburg. And uh, Christmas holidays, we went to the beach, to the seaside for uh, Christmas holidays. Southern Hemisphere, Christmas time is summer not like Hong Kong. We spend you know, Christmas at the beach. And, um, but this particular year, Christmas Day was a miserable day. It was overcast. It was windy. It was just a terrible day. But my family decided, let's go to the beach anyway and fly some kites, okay? Get some fresh air. So we, we go out to the beach, and there's nobody else on the beach. My family alone. I'm eight or nine years old. I'm pretty bored with flying kites. And so I say to my dad, I'm going to go for a swim. So my dad says, okay, sure. So I go into the water. We always swim at that beach. I know that water fairly well. But I didn't know there was a riptide, a current, like an underwater current that pulls you out. And so I'm trying to catch some waves. But before I know it, I'm getting dragged further and further out. And I can't swim back in. But my dad was watching what was going on. And so my dad runs up to the car park. And the last lifeguard is getting in his car about to drive away. Because the lifeguards think, there's nobody on the beach, nobody's swimming, we can go home. And so he, he gets the guy's attention, says, please come. And the lifeguard runs into the beach and gets in and pulls me out of the water, okay? And we all lived happily ever after. Um, I can't really remember exactly what happened, but I'm pretty sure my parents were very grateful. I'm, I'm sure they were very thankful, right? I can't remember what happened, but I'm sure they thanked the guy profusely. But here's the thing. Five minutes later, that lifeguard got back in his car, drove away, and we never saw him again. Never spoke to him. Don't know who he is. I don't know if he's still alive. No recollection. That was the end of our relationship. Friends, that is not how God wants to save his people. Thank you for saving me. High five. Now I will go on my way. When God rescues his people, It's the start of a lifelong relationship that will go on forever. When God saves us, it's the beginning of an eternal relationship of knowing Him and being known by Him, of loving Him and being loved by Him, of ever deeper friendship and intimacy and closeness and joy of enjoying God forever. And, and, And one of God's favorite sayings in the Old Testament is this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt Therefore, have no other gods before me. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. Therefore, love your neighbor. Therefore, welcome the sojourner and the foreigner and the exile and the poor and the marginalized into your community. Therefore, be faith, know that I will be faithful to you as I was to your people. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Now let that shape our relationship going forward. In chapter 12, we actually read it. God says, this month will be the first month of the year for you, forever. God redefines the whole calendar around this day when he saved them. 
Because this is the thing that's going to mark their relationship forever. What does it mean to be the people of God? It means to know that you have been rescued and saved. Why does God rescue them? Not just out of compassion, not just out of kindness, but for relationship. That they will be his people. That he will be their God. That they will know him and love him and enjoy him and glorify him and worship him and treasure him above everything else all the days of their life. This is what the Exodus is about. God being faithful to his promise, covenant promise to Abraham that he will form his people. So friends, what about us? What should we do about this? Well, let me close with two application questions. Very questions. The first one is this, very simple. Are you part of the people of God? Friends, are you part of the people of God? And if you think you are, how would you know that? Have you come to see God for who he truly is? Have you felt God calling you? Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. The fact that you're in church this morning is God calling you. It's not a coincidence. Maybe God has brought you here that he may reveal himself to you, make himself known to you. He's calling you like he called Moses. But friends, to be part of the people of God is also to know that he went to the cross for you, to rescue you, to save you, to deliver you. Do you know that Jesus came not just to give you advice, not just to give you wisdom, not just to help you get along in life, but he, he came to die on the cross that he might save you, that he might take judgment for you so that judgment may pass over you that you can be saved. Friends, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Taking communion doesn't make you a Christian. Coming to Jesus as savior, believing in him and trusting in him is what saves you. But then here's the other question, and this is probably true, this is probably applicable to most of us. If you are a Christian, how's your relationship with God? Is it alive? Is it vivid? Is it real? Is it dynamic? Does it shape your life and your identity? Does what God did on the cross all those years ago define you as a person? Friends, have you forgotten the wonder of your salvation? Have you become familiar with the gospel? Have you forgotten what it is that Jesus rescued you from? Have you become familiar with Calvary? Friends, what God is doing in the Exodus is he's forming a people. He's saving and rescuing a people. That those people may come under his rule and experience his blessing. But it all starts with being rescued and saved. God doesn't just invite us into his kingdom. He rescues us into his kingdom. Let me give us 30 seconds to think and ponder those questions. Then I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to respond in one last song. Let's take half a minute to think. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, wonderful Spirit of God, 
God, we confess this morning, it's so easy to become familiar and blasé with the old, old story that you are God who loves us enough to rescue. You so loved the world, God, that you sent your son to die on the cross that we might be saved through him. God, I pray for each one of us this morning, for those of us that aren't Christians, God, reveal yourself to us. Open the eyes of our heart to see you, to believe in you, to trust in you. But God, for those of us that are Christians, I pray that the wonder of Jesus and the cross will be so real to us, it'll shape us and define us. God, I pray for us as a church, may we ever be centered on the good news of you, Christ, who you are and what you did for us. God, thank you for going to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you, the Lamb of God, was slain that we might be saved. That you took the, the, the wrath and the judgment that we deserved, that, that we might be passed over and might be saved and rescued. God, I pray, won't you help us and form us into the people of God, and that you may work through us, work in us and then work through us to bless the city with the gospel. God, may we celebrate and love the wonder of Jesus and what you've done for us, that you are faithful to your promises, that in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. You made these great promises to Abraham. God, you fulfilled them in Christ. In you, Christ Jesus, all the promises are yes and amen. We love you. We thank you. We celebrate and rejoice in you this morning. In your great name we pray. Amen.